and welcome to episode 458 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I am Carlos, and in this week's show, uh, A350 ends up with a redesigned no- nose cone, and one pilot has to break into his own aircraft. In the military news this week, an F5 crashes, and the Chinese Air Force tries some rather interesting moves in front of a US aircraft. So, I'm back in the UK, and joining me this week, just across the village, over in the PTUK Master Suite Studios, it is, of course... The master of all things slidey and twiddly is Matt Smith. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Yes, yes, yes. I'm here. I'm here as well. You're back in the UK, back home. Yay. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a, it's a tough old job. Yeah, well quite. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Indeed. No, it's good to be back. Good to be back. I got home Sunday morning and uh, had a lovely flight back with American Airlines on their 777-200 uh er which was lovely very nice flight indeed nice crew as well and they uh, loved the box of celebration chocolates i took them god blimey did they love them <laughs> yes it was very good but great uh, great to be back anyway and joining us from across the fields the glens the rivers the lakes the ponds in the uk over in the glorious buckinghamshire countryside is of course neville bounds Yes, here I am again uh, with a new battery. Not for me, but for the car <laughs> after last week's uh, episode. Uh, so that's all good. Uh, I've been doing some procurement of books as well. So we've got more books to give away and a special one in a couple of weeks' time. And we've got the answer to the competition from last time round. I'll be setting a new question for this week's competition as well. Ooh. Otherwise, uh, all good here. Thank you very much. Indeed, indeed. Uh, if only it was that easy, hey Nev, to sort of you know just change the batteries and and off we go again. If only, if only, if only that was possible in life, eh? It's actually quite <laughs> difficult to change a battery on a car, uh, and you have to do a lot of software reset and battery oh. management sensor and oh dear, it's a bit of a faff. But anyway. It's all okay now. I mean, on my old car, it's not a problem at all. All you have to do is literally just sort of take the old battery off and put the new one on. There's no clever resetting required here, it has to be said. I'm right in thinking, Nev, that you had to get one of those those special batteries because you've got the old stop-start function on your car. Yes, well, they're always more expensive anyway. Yes. They take a bit of a caning. Um, But luckily, they fit it under warranty. Oh, that's a result, yeah. Even better. Even Mm. better. Yeah. Well... Uh, what we got uh, to look at first then on the show this week. Well, uh, I've got a little video, a special little treat for our very own Neville Bounds uh, this week. And there's a little video that I took uh, when I, uh, well, when I landed at London Heathrow on Sunday morning. It was around about uh, eight o'clock Sunday morning. And uh, it's on the screen for those of you watching in the world of YouTube now. And uh, glorious sunshine. I will say it was nice because when I left Charlotte uh, the, the night before, um, it was a very wet, windy and rainy Charlotte when I left. I literally, the l- final day there, the weather completely changed. But they are Nev, especially for you. Look at all it's those BA planes. The entire... <laughs> I say, Let me guess, was there an IT issue when you were coming back? Is that why they were all on the ground? So you landed on nine left there. That is correct, Nev. That is correct, yeah. And uh, to give a little Adam a little wave there in the tower. <laughs> mm. And uh, yeah, it was 
He probably doesn't work, so no, he doesn't no, work. Far too senior for that, goodness. But uh, <laughs> one thing I will just say is a big thanks to uh, to the ground uh, ground operators at uh, Heathrow, who, well, the tower operator, I should say, who was in charge of ground, uh, because we parked on a remote stand, which I, I think must have been somewhere south of Scotland, um, <laughs> outside London, because we had to get a bus back to the terminal building. Um, but I will say... One of the things I'm very pleased of is the fact that I heard the day, I think it was the previous day, Nev, you probably know this, uh, I heard that there were some slight issues at London Heathrow in regards to uh, the passport, the e-reader passport Ooh, control. Yes. The dreaded yes. passport e-readers. And the whole, it wasn't just Heathrow, it was Gatwick, Manchester, you know, the whole lot uh, had a real problem. But it's all back up and running now, thank goodness. But uh, yeah. yeah, we could do without that sort of business going on. But no, I got through really quickly, so it's very good. One last gripe I've got is with Hopper, the transfer service at Heathrow, the buses. If, you, if anyone from Hopper's watching the show, probably not, but anyway, if anyone's used a Hopper service before to get to the hotels in and around London Heathrow, it would have been quicker if I had to hop back on the 777 and taxied to the, uh, to the, the hotel, the Renaissance Hotel, because the Hopper service was only just uh, nearly an hour late. So big oh, thanks to everyone at Hopper. Hopper was a shocker then. It was a shocker, <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, yes, thanks to Hopper. It uh, made my day even longer getting back to the east of England here. But uh, I, ha I have to say, in Hopper's defence, because I was in, uh, it was Hopper that was the service I was using for both of my connections in Gran Canaria, and I have to say they were extremely punctual and the and the uh, the coaches that I had they were both absolutely beautiful uh, coaches I could only dream of driving and they were all beautifully cold when we got in them so oh um, no you know, the, the, these were like 1920s Dennis trucks nice okay Matt, with windows in the size they, they weren't like that at all Yes. Oh dear. Okay. Oh well. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to hear that. Uh <laughs> anyway, it is the beginning of the month, so Nev's got a very important uh, group of people to thank uh, for their contributions to the show. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, yes, I can't believe it's the beginning of the month already. Amazing, isn't it? So uh, uh, this is where we say thank you very much to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. Uh, for the last month uh, and those are Bill Aronek uh, Sam Dawson uh, Alex Robinson Dirk S Sasha Beer Stephen Ivey Nick Codling Louis Cachares uh, Alan White Stephen Howland Tanya Wyman Nicholas Hewitt Masha Gertz uh, Reuben Wells Neil Lamborn Graham Haley Jonathan Warner Eric Graves Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, he's still playing even though he doesn't work on a Sunday, uh, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Jenny Parkinson, Stuart Backer, Ray Williams and Stephanie Plummer. And from the PayPal side of things, it's uh, Craig at Eurostoko and Mazus Kareem. Thank you very much indeed to all of you for uh, your fantastic contributions because that helps us keep the show on the road literally in a, in a week or so's time so we'll be going off to RAF Cosford and we'll be telling you more about that uh, next week but uh, many thanks to everybody who has contributed once again and a quick special mention as well to a latest Patreon who uh, joined us last week, Ben Todd. Uh, thanks to Ben Todd for becoming our latest member of the Patreon team. So thank you uh, very much, Ben, for your generous uh, Patreon pledge. So we've got loads of stuff to get through on the show this week. 
including uh, our caption this picture uh, this week, which made made, uh, made for some quite entertaining comments. Uh, but it's time to have a look at this week's commercial news. So if all the team's ready, yeah. let's, let's go. So, kicking off this week's first news story from theguardian.com, Delta Airlines, they're in trouble, facing a lawsuit over a $1 billion carbon neutrality claim. Blimey. Uh, Delta Airlines, the major US airline, is facing class action lawsuit over allegations of misleading consumers with its claims of being the world's first carbon neutral airline. Naughty things to say there. The suit contends that Delta's claims rely heavily on junk carbon offsets, which do little to counteract the climate crisis. In February 2020, Delta announced a $1 billion plan to achieve carbon neutrality within the next decade, stating it would, uh, this, this initiative would be achieved through the purchase of carbon credits. Uh, conservation of natural habitats and increased aircraft efficiency. However, the lawsuit filed in California argues that Delta's carbon neutrality claim is demonstrably false and accuses the airline of misleading customers into believing their flights have no environmental impact. In January, a major investigation uh, or investigative journalism project spearheaded by The Guardian claimed that the carbon credit provider Vera was offering many worthless forest credits to corporations. And uh, it alleged 90% of Vera's rainforest credits were not delivering the stated climate benefits. Vera has disputed the findings, but has nevertheless set out plans to replace its rainforest carbon credit mythologies by 2025. The case filed by Glendale, California resident Mayan Berin claims to act on behalf of anyone who flew Delta while living in the state since March 2020. For a carbon credit to be valid, it must provide benefit that would not have happened otherwise. Barron argues that this enabled Delta to gain a market share and charge higher prices. And she argues, though, her attorneys that would not have brought the tickets or would have paid less has she known the off uh, nature of the offsets. Barron will argue that Delta customers will likely not have been aware of these controversies and have been falsely misled into thinking their flights had no climate impact. Delta has argued that the lawsuit is without legal merit and has started or stated that it has fully transitioned to focus away from carbon offsets towards the decarbonisation of operations. A judge will now decide whether or not to progress the case. Well, as far as I know, all jets produce some kind of exhaust emissions into the sky. I didn't realise that... Uh, it's all a load of waffle. I think I think there's probably a lot of waffle. You know, people you, you're calling it waffle, but I think there's a lot of people who would uh, not necessarily agree with you in terms of that. Yeah. As I say, it's a, it's uh, it's uh, it's the aircraft are still putting out the emissions. It's just the offsetting is what they're sort of you know claiming is is what's in place. Well, I've no, yes. never got my head round it. Nev knows more about it than me. No, I don't. All I know <laughs> that it, this will, whatever the result of this, the price of your ticket will go up because <laughs> of the cost of the legal fees of doing all this stuff. 
I don't know how much Delta will have to pay their uh, lawyers and, and legal teams to do all this stuff, but uh, it will be substantial whether they win or lose. So that will be passed on to the, the good old passenger at the end of the day. So uh, that is going to be the result of all that, irrespective of what the, the argument is, mm. I thought. Oh, well. Hurry up and get those electric planes flying. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, Nev, you have got uh, the next story. Oh, have I? I thought you were. Are you sure? Oh, no. Oh, have you? <laughs> no, that would be me, I think. Um, I'll, I'll take oh, Matt, sorry. If you Matt, don't mind, yeah. Nev, if that's all right. You can have this, Matt. Yeah. No, please do. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, yeah, this is uh, chaviation.com is the website. And the headline is UK startup carrier Global Airlines has acquired an Airbus A380. So Global Air A Airlines, a British startup planning to operate premium intercontinental services from London Gatwick in spring 2020 has acquired its first A380-800 from Lessor uh, Doric Asset Finance. Finance. The startup said it chose to buy rather than lease the aircraft as it showcases our commitment to financial security and resilience from day one. The purchase of our first aircraft demonstrates that we are well on the way to launching global. The uh, next step is to overhaul and refit the aircraft to our high specification, providing our customers with the best experience in the sky today. Chief Executive and Founder James Asquith has said said uh, 9h uh, mike indigo papa was that right india oh yes yeah. Uh, sorry, um, was initially, <laughs> sorry, I'm so proud of myself, uh, was initially uh, delivered to Singapore Airlines, SQ Singapore Shanghai in 2008, and subsequently leased by High Fly Malta, 3L Malta International in 2018. The Maltese ACMI charter specialist retired it in 2020, struggling to find enough business for the type. The aircraft remains parked at uh, Lourdes and Tarbes and uh, Red registered in Malta but has been repainted in Global's livery. Uh, the startup said it is planning to acquire another 3A380 shortly and aims to outfit them with around 471 passenger seats each, uh, including high-end first-class suites. The uh, Global Airline said that it would outline its network plans later in 2023. The startup previously floated plans to connect Gatwick with long-haul destinations around the world but now now said it would initially focus on the transatlantic market. Uh, Global Airlines has a registered uh, capital of a um, hundred, well it says a hundred pounds here. <laughs> yes. That seems very low. Uh, it's a registered capital of £100. That's uh, US dollars fully paid by founder Asquith. The startup is reportedly backed by Asquith's other business venture, Holiday Swap, a privately held uh, holiday accommodation provider. Oh, now this is interesting. Do you think perhaps then that they're going to try and do a, like a TUI or, or, or a Jet 2 or something like that where where not only do they do the holiday, but they do the plane as well? 
Well, in, in like an inclusive tour kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A sort of like an all-in all type yeah. thing. Um, it's uh, interestingly enough, actually, uh, John is very kindly providing some information because I, I feel like I know the name. It's one of those. I feel like I know the name of James Asquith. Uh, and he's very kindly popping it in the notes saying, James Asquith is an internet personality. You might remember the very open and very critical letters to Emirates and Air Canada uh, that we covered at some point on the show a while back. Uh, he runs the Holiday Swap website and he basically is an Instagram influencer so there we go so uh, an Instagram influencer with access to a large sum of cash I suspect <laughs> but uh, yeah I don't know I mean how do we feel about this because obviously uh, I mean it's exciting that um, uh, it's exciting that uh, you know the A380 is finding a new lease of life with this <laughs> this new um, let's say carrier for the moment i guess that is what they intend to be at some point um but i mean i mean it seems a very brave decision yeah and of course they probably need more than one i mean they are, they are saying they're going to acquire another three that's the, the plan because if you ever only have one aircraft and it ever goes tech especially an aircraft that size there's no alternatives really you end up putting people on on two flights probably yeah uh, rather than one but uh, be interesting to see what the uh, ticket prices are for this I uh, hope they're not going to go for a low-cost model. I don't think they are from what they've been saying in this. I mean, if they're doing a first-class um, thing, I doubt because it. Because that low-cost stuff doesn't work at all, as we know, across the pond. Mm. But uh, if they're going for high-end uh, first-class stuff, then that's a bit more like it. So um, mm. I think we'll see what that uh, comes out like. But it's good to see there's some more uh, utilisation of the A380, though, definitely. Mm, indeed. Richard Adams is saying in the chat room there, it's an expensive aircraft for a start-up. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all for going, going in big. Do you know what I mean? But uh, I mean, you li there, you're literally going in with the biggest in the industry, aren't you? I suppose. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as you say, I suspect they'll have three or four of these. It'll be interesting to find out what the routes are later on in the uh, in the year. I think it's towards the end of 2023. We'll hopefully find out more. But uh, yeah, on, on a plus side, I'll be, there's loads of spares. <coughs> spares. I mean, yes. I mean, there's with there's all the 380s that have been retired. <laughs> I was going to say there's loads of spare aircraft as well. Um, although, uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think Emirates will be sort of retiring any of theirs anytime soon. They probably make sure that James can't get hold of them if he's been critical of them as well but uh, yeah there we go uh, yeah apparently he also holds a guinness world record uh, i don't know what for um but uh, yeah james asquith apparently uh, does hold a guinness world record as well so there you go <laughs> so a new lease of life for the 380 indeed well, indeed let's, let's let's see if it works yes watch this crossed. space i think fingers crossed nev damaged nose cones Never a good thing. Not ideal. No. It's on the aerotime.aero. Uh, Air France A350 900 turns back with damaged nose. Uh, well, this aircraft was uh, operating flight uh, AF291 between Osaka Kansai in Japan and Paris Charles de Gaulle uh, on 28th of May. Just gone. Was forced to declare an emergency at 11 p.m. Uh, sorry, 11 a.m. I think that probably is uh, local time, and returned to the airport after apparently having its nose cone damaged by a bird strike. Uh, the decision to turn back was taken about 30 minutes into the flight when the aircraft had already reached its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet after the pilots reported a technical malfunction affecting the aircraft's weather radar 
and speedometer. I think they mean air speed indicator. <laughs> you have a speedometer on your car or your motorbike. Uh, pictures have emerged on social media of the A350 taxiing at uh, Kansai after the emergency landing with its nose cone visibly damaged likely due to bird strike experience upon takeoff. Uh, the aircraft, which is registration Foxtrot Hotel Tango uh, Yankee Oscar, entered service with Air France barely a year ago and was carrying 324 passengers plus the crew at the time of the incident. I would imagine, unless there's any fuel jettison facility on that aircraft, they would have landed uh, overweight as well. I mean, this must be something that you hear at the, the front of the aircraft. I mean, that must be a heck of a bang. Um, to get a, a strike like that and to do that much very visible damage to the to the nose cone um, I mean because you're, you're quite a long way away from the engine yeah. so I, sus I, I assume it's fairly quiet up front yeah, well of course the A350 is particularly quiet aircraft anyway um, uh, Carlos and I went on one uh, on the way to the Dubai Air Show in 2019, I seem to recall, and that was a very, very quiet aircraft. But uh, yeah, lots of sensors and pitot tubes and what have you on the front, uh, off, uh, left and right hand side of the aircraft as well. So apart from the nose cone damage, there was some other damage done probably also. Mm. Uh, but uh, no, they got it back on the deck nicely and um, would have to have deplaned the passengers and found another aircraft. Uh, yes. Maybe split them onto two flights i don't know how they all got back in the end but uh, yeah not ideal but um yeah of course when these i mean aircraft takeoff speeds what are they you know 150 knots 160 mm. knots sometimes something like that um you know you go through some birds uh, on takeoff or soon after takeoff that's uh, they do a lot of damage don't they? I bet they many do. examples of that in the past actually so yeah absolutely totally agree there Looking at the picture actually on the Av Herald site, a very a lot better close-up picture of the nose cone, and there's uh, there's no um, different colorization of the nose cone or debris, so it is a fairly either swift hit, I should mm. say, or something that didn't leave its mark anyway on the nose cone. But mm. uh, yeah, would have been very noisy, I'd imagine, because when you take away the aerodynamics of a nose cone and, and put dents in, it does <laughs> it does create does create some quite uh, well, noisy environments. It'll it, it, presumably it's uh, lots of things like um, uh, like it gen presumably it generates like handling issues, vibrations, all sorts of bits and pieces. I dare say. Yeah, it might have, might have been vibrations, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think because it was on the nose cone, obviously that's that's where the, the weather radar is as well and the ILS um, antennas and all, all the rest of it. So there's, there's a lot of sensitive equipment just behind the nose cone there. But as I said earlier, there, there's a lot of stuff on the left and right-hand side of the aircraft as well that measures uh, air pressure and speed and all the rest of it. So a lot of other things that can be damaged. Um, but on, on the picture on the Av Herald site, which Matt will get in a moment, if you look... It's actually the damage itself looks as if it's contained within the actual nose cone section oh, itself, which is easy to replace. Because yeah. I've seen these when they've done, they've changed these in the workshops when you've seen them on the TV programs. And it looks on the picture here that the damage is well contained within the actual um, mm. pull up, you know, the actual takeaway section of the nose cone. So yes. this may be a relatively easy fix, I would hope. I mean, there's, there's there's holes in it as well. Actually, we're looking at the picture now. Yes. If you're watching on YouTube, I yes. mean, I mean that that, I mean that that can't have been one, but that must have been a flock of or something, yes. surely. Well, also there's yeah. a lot there's lots. Of, imagine the aircraft's structural integrity as well, mm. bearing in mind its uh, carbon fibre uh, construction as well. So there might be a 
bit more to it than just you know buffing it out mm. or uh, or replacing. Yeah, Richard Adams makes a good point. Wonder if um, that much crushing would have damaged the radar inside because there is actually a radar dish. In, mm. in oh, the, is there? Well, I think it's a we think it's the weather radar. Weather radar, think, radar and yeah, weather radar. Yeah. Yeah. That close to the to the end, you you would say. Yeah, yeah, it's literally where that's deformed, where those holes oh, okay. are, is where the um, the dish sits in there. Wow. Okay. So yeah. Well, it'll be a few quid. I'm sure the insurance company will pay out. <laughs> Can you get insurance uh, for something like that? <laughs> well, I don't know. Actually, that's yeah. something we don't we need to find out on the show is whether um, whether these I airlines have insurance. insurance mm. sort of yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. Moving on, uh, next story. Exciting news here if you fancy a good theme park because uh, Simple Flying, this comes from uh, .com, Flight of Dreams, a Japanese theme park has been built around the first ever uh, 787. Located at Chubu, or Shubu Center International Airport, 22 miles south of Nagoya in central Japan, is a shopping center and a theme park containing the first ever Boeing 787 Dreamliner. The decision to open an exhibition featuring the prototype Boeing 787-8 in a shopping centre was not by accident. The Aichi uh, Prefecture in central Honshu Island is the heart of the Japanese aerospace industry. The area played a huge role in building the Boeing 787 with the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Fuji Aerospace Technology and Kawasaki Heavy Industries supplying 35% of the plane's parts. The Boeing 787's wings, mid-forward fuselage, center wing box, and main landing gear uh, were all manufactured in Japan as well. Once completed, the parts were transported aboard a Dreamlifter for final assembly at Boeing's Everett Washington factory. And in recognition of the Japanese company's role in bringing the aircraft to fruition on June the 22nd, 2015, Boeing donated the prototype Dreamliner to the Chubu Center International Airport, serving the city of Nagoya. The airport is located uh, in the third largest metropolitan area in Japan, a region that is home to Toyota and Mitsubishi. With the airport handling millions of passengers a year, they opened a retail park and leisure park called the Skytown Shopping Centre. Open to the public, the shopping centre features 61 shops and restaurants individually themed to look like they belong on a Japanese street. In 2018, the shopping centre decided to expand and open a new section called the Flight of Dreams, which it would build around the Boeing 787 as its centrepiece. Visitors and passengers can access the Flight of Dreams via a footbridge from the passenger terminal. The exterior of the building where the aircraft is housed was built to resemble a hangar that was constructed around the jetliner. The Flight of Dreams exhibition, is, or big, uh, Flight of Dreams building, is divided into two sections: uh, the Flight Park and the Seattle Terrace. The Flight Park is an aviation-themed exhibition area where visitors can learn about the history of flight. And the site also features two flight simulators, and of course, you can explore the Boeing 787 Dreamliner on display and have your photo taken while sitting on the flight deck. In the Flight of Dreams, there is also a young children's play area with swings and roundabouts. And if you want to experience flying the 787, the simulator costs around 1,080 yen, or around $8 for five minutes. Oh, that's not bad. Uh, or $90 for a 30-minute flight. Oh, blimey. 
<laughs> Ticket, tickets booked for there next. Yeah. Uh, inspired by the city where Boeing was founded, Seattle Terraces features many shopping and dining options you'd find expect to find in Seattle. There are also some Japanese restaurants and noodle bars for visitors who prefer local fare. The Flight of Dreams is also home to the first Boeing store opened outside the U.S. You can buy official Boeing merchandise imported from the U.S. in the Seattle Playmaker store. You will also find genuine Boeing aircraft parts, which have been turned into furniture or decorative items for your home. So, uh, fastest and most convenient ways to get there, the Flight of Dreams, and is to take the Sky Limited Express from the Goya a train station. The train is uh, has only has first class seating there we go Nev special for you and the fare is one and oh, 1590 yen or 11 $11.50 blimey we're being robbed in this country for first class seating <laughs> on trains all seats must be reserved in advance and the journey takes 28 minutes and uh, you could probably find out more details on them but uh, to get in it's £8.60 or $8.60 I should say uh, to get in and children from 3 to 12 it costs you $5.80 let's be fair it's quite cheap to be you know be coat the arts here for a, mm. uh, an ex exhibit ex ex like this I should say it's fairly cheap and uh, mm. yeah it puts, I mean, it's more it puts of a, a shopping mall than a theme park in my exactly. opinion like, I guess it's more of a I guess that's, uh, I don't know, maybe lost in translation or something. A theme park, I would, obviously, I would normally associate with somewhere like Alton Towers or something like that. But uh... So basically, when, when I go there with Gemma, mm -hmm. in, she'll go off shopping. Right. <laughs> I'll be in the 787, in the sim. Yeah. Uh, apparently, I'm being told theme park means it's just got a theme that can include things that's like fine. rides and stuff like that. So, so yeah. So, uh, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 uh, I doff my cap. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, very good. Yeah. I like that. That's that's good thinking. That is. We'll have to try and see if we can get that in the uh, our local shopping centre in Norwich, man. <laughs> I mean, I'm, at Castle Quarter. I'm not quite sure how or where you would put it. I don't think there's the space. Is there? <laughs> well, we're, it's right next door to Norwich London National International Airport. Right. Okay. Okay. I mean, there might be room at the Aviation Museum next door. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, no, that is a good museum. Yeah. Indeed. Um, um, right, up next, it's uh, a story all about the Reno Air Race. Obviously, Armando's not with us this week, you might have noticed. He is busy, absolutely going crazy at the Reno Air Races, but he has sent in a video for us this week, and this story comes from flyingmag.com. So over to you, Armando. Hey, team. Here we are back in Reno, Nevada, uh, this is Pylon Racing Seminar Week. This is the practice week in preparation for the Reno Air Races in September of this year. And as we've mentioned, this is the last year for the Reno Air Races. As we know it here in the city of Reno, uh, they're still looking for a new venue for 2024 or whatever the future may hold. Uh, so hopefully this week we're going to get some really good content. Uh, I've got some great pilots teed up that we're going to hopefully do some interviews with this week and we'll air them out over the next couple weeks but i wanted to kind of get this story out there we've been holding off this is something that's actually been happening uh, or uh, in the works for a couple weeks now uh, we were holding off on talking about it until it became public uh, mostly because there is a lawsuit there's a legal uh, case going on right now and it was finally made public this week this particular uh, 
story was picked up by Flying Magazine, longtime running magazine, um, which is essentially the lawsuit leading up to uh, potentially the biplane class, which is one of the classes here at the Reno Air Races, not attending this week that I'm here, as well as potentially not racing in the final races in September of this year. Um, so what essentially happened was um, one of the things that we pride ourselves here at the Reno Air Races, uh, and I'm speaking for all of the classes, I, I'm really mostly experienced with just the sport class and a little bit of T6 class, um, but I think all of the classes are the same in that um, we uphold the highest standards, we value safety, and we value trust in each other. That's the pilots, the ground crews, the operation staff. It takes everyone to be able to trust each other and perform to a certain standard for the races to be executed in a safe manner. Last year, September of last year, so almost nine months now, the, uh, the sport class did something which is one of the hardest things to do, which is as a class, they voted uh, democratically um, with the backing of the biplane class leadership uh, they voted to stand down a pilot. Now, as all of our listeners know, it is hard to do that. It is hard to call out someone um, where they're not meeting standards in any job or any industry, but especially in a very type A personality kind of driven environment like we do here at the air races. Now, this particular person, uh, John D'Alessandris, uh, was... Uh, was stood down by his class and his class leadership and his instructors um, for, for essentially unsafe flying or not meeting the standards. Um, this actually, 99.9% .9 of people, of pilots, when approached with this kind of scenario would just accept that the class has voted and there is a an avenue, there are multiple avenues to remedy substandard performance. That could be a reattendance of the pylon resting seminar, especially if it happens during race week, remedial training. Um, at the very extreme end, it's, you know, kind of stood down and removal from, from racing. This particular individual decided to not do that. And in fact, created a lawsuit for, uh, against the Reno Air Racing Association. Now, according to some court documents, the uh, accusations against Mr. DeLisandris were allegations of cheating during some speed trials, reckless flying, including crossing the show line, which is a, uh, a, a, a uh, something that we just don't do, right? The, the, the crowd safety, is number one in this organization, uh, followed by the safety of the pilots. Um, he was accused of having his airplane inspected in his own hangar or a private hangar, as opposed to the biplane hangar as the class rules require. And uh, per the lawsuit, several pilots approached uh, Mr. Delisandris and the officials with their concerns um, but at the time he was not pulled from the competition. Now, once the class voted and said he was uh, not performing to standards, 
he did not take it well. And he is actually suing the biplane class and the Reno Air Race Association for a breach of contract, civil conspiracy, defamation, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Um, now, something interesting happened in this lawsuit. We all assume that we are gonna be backed by our leaders. And in this particular case, the class officers took this action of removing him from the racing, um, standing him down. But the class officers did not feel like the Reno Air Race Association was supporting their decision to do so. And as such, both from a personal feeling standpoint, as well as a liability standpoint, uh, this kind of pushed the class officers into a corner and they ended up resigning from the board. All of the class officers res resigned from the board, essentially leaving this, the biplane class leaderless. And then in order to protect the assets of the organization, they essentially disbanded the biplane class um, all because of this one individual in their lawsuit. Um, so what does this mean? They are not gonna be here this week for one and it could potentially take the biplane class out of the running at the last Reno Air Race here in September. Um, it, this is really important to us. The, the Reno Air Races have been held since 1964. The biplane class has been uh, an integral part of the racing here. It's one of the most exciting race uh, races that happens because it's such a tight course, it's such tight competition. The airplanes are all fairly evenly matched. Um, it is just a shame that they're not able to participate because of legal action. Um, as we kind of have talked about on the show, the, the Reno Air Race Association is sort of an umbrella organization with each individual class being its own, almost self-governing entity. Uh, and this is only affecting the biplane class for now. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like they're going to be able to, to participate. Um, that all being said, the races are still on for their last year here. September 13 through 17 is the date. They're expecting over 150 airplanes, plus some static displays, plus military display teams, civilian display teams. There's gonna be uh, activities for families and kids. Um, and then of course the, the heritage displays with some of the warbirds. Um, so, and also the, the stole drag, the short takeoff and landing stole drag races will be here with some pretty famous uh, internet personalities. So again, we didn't really want to mention this until it was made public. It is now public and it's just a very unfortunate event that the Reno Air Race will not be fully, um, fully staffed for this year. I think it's one of those things when you look at safety at air shows after the what's gone on in previous years, not just in, in the US, but in, in obviously in the UK as well, that anyone who, who flies and does naughty things when flying is, is going to be bound to um, be pulled up on mm, said indeed. Uh, thing. But um, it's sad, though. It is sad. We were just chatting whilst that was video was playing there. We we're just saying it is sad. It's the last Reno air show uh, at Reno anyway. Uh, this year. I, said, I mean, I was saying though. I think I think it will. 
I think I genuinely do think because it's such a popular event, and as long as they can overcome the hurdle of the insurance stuff, I do think they'll find another base, if you like, to to sort of host it. And of course, um, I know it won't be called the Reno Air Races, obviously, which will be a shame. But I do think it's you know as long as the team moves with it i do think that it'll get that it'll immediately have that same you know passion and love that you have for the reno races i i do think i do think it's still got legs personally we're, we're lucky as a as a show and as a team to have uh, one of our team members there aren't we indeed with we are, uh, armando right? so i'm sure he'll be full of uh, good stuff when he comes back there uh, with reports on what's going on there but, um, yeah, Indeed. look forward to that, Armando. So, Nev, you've got the next story, and uh, it's uh, something you don't expect to see at your local airport. Well, you don't have too many pies before you attempt <laughs> this feat, I must say. Uh, it's on Twitter.com. It says that locked door forces Southwest Airlines pilot to crawl through flight deck window. Passengers boarding a Southwest Airlines flight at San Diego International Airport were left puzzled after witnessing a pilot crawl onto the plane using one of the cockpit windows. A Twitter user by the name of Matt Rex Road took a photo of the event and posted it on the social media platform. Southwest responded to the tweet, to, to the tweet saying, well, this is definitely something you don't see every day. Uh, the incident took place on Wednesday, uh, May the 24th at San Diego. Uh, pilots operating the flight Sacramento uh, couldn't access the flight deck as the door had been somehow locked from the inside. No injuries were reported. Uh, the photos and details of the incident have been getting quite a reaction online, with most people praising the pilot for his dedication. Thanks to the stunt, the flight bound for Sacramento was only delayed by eight minutes and arrived a mere seven minutes behind schedule. Uh, when asked about the specifics of what exactly happened, Southwest told Simple Flying that a passenger trying to use the forward restroom inadvertently pushed the flight deck door, causing it to shut and lock by design. Unable to get in, the pilots had to resort to enter the flight deck through one of the windows with help from the ground crew. Uh, the airline said in a statement, as you see from the photo, one of our pilots unlocked the door after entering the flight deck through a window. The flight departed as scheduled ahead of the uh, busy weekend of summer travel in the US. We don't have anything else to offer here except our thanks for the always impressive teamwork of our people to serve our customers safely and efficiently. Now, Nev, uh, one uh, the <laughs> Captain Cruz has said in the chat room here, have we arrived at our caption this competition already? Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. There's so much material there, isn't there? There is. Uh, Only there some is. of it broadcastable. No, no, none of it, in fact, probably. Uh, uh, he, he was lucky that the window was, was open, yeah. because, I, you know, if that window is sealed shut, you, you can't just jimmy it open well no no exactly they've got a very strong you know mechanism from from the inside those flight deck uh, <laughs> dv windows haven't they so uh, yeah. yeah amazing so uh, yeah um, captain cruz is saying cockpit door lock provider rating triple a plus indeed never mind hey well there you go i like richard adams richard adams little comment just there in the chat room matt uh, sorry, what's, oh, what's, uh, it's, it's not uh, like the pilot needs to scramble for 1A, of course, which is a very good <laughs> point. Uh, Nev, on the other hand, are, are we sure that's not a picture of you trying to... <laughs> so, uh, well, no, I, I'm not as slim as that fellow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Nev. Nev, yeah. honestly. Yeah. Uh, good, good point uh, John's just raised, actually. Why wasn't there anybody in the cockpit if there were passengers on board? Yeah. Or why don't they just have, like, a car, you know, beep, beep. 
I mean, I then it must be because it'll need special type rating. And goodness well, knows what, what else if you're if you're going to do that. But I also uh, think that Southwest wants, and anybody else, any other airline operator would just like to gloss over anything to do with cockpit door security after yeah. you know what's gone on previously. So they don't want to talk yes. about mechanisms and how stuff works. And mm. I fully understand that. After but that. but as exactly. John is saying in our ears, though, like you know, there's surely even if it was even if there wasn't a pilot or a captain, if there are passengers on the plane. There must, surely there has to be like one person, like cabin crew or Absolutely. or an engineer yeah, be, or something like that, somebody yeah. who's responsible Absolutely. for the aircraft because there's somebody, like you know, if there's a member of the public on the plane, it's mm. as you say, like the um, you know, John's saying, like you know, there could have been, if they, what if there was a fire, for example, knowing what's what's best to do and, and stuff like that. There, there's a lot of very unanswered questions with this story. Could have been a rogue um, pet. A fire, get out of the aircraft. That's my. Uh, well, yes, pet. yes, obviously, yes, yes. Uh, p- preferably without your hand luggage, if you wouldn't mind. But if you think how tight, uh, well, certainly on the A320s, I don't know about the 73s, but uh, the, t- the lav door is very c- tight up to the flight deck door as well. So if that was slightly open and there was someone just, you know, lost their balance or they wanted, wanted to push on something to, you know, keep their balance, that's very easy to, to do, I would imagine. Um, so, so uh, as I say, we're, we're, we're very, very lucky with the team um, that we have, as I say, like um, the 738, as you're saying there, Nev, is like, you know, the toilet door handle can get caught in flight deck door handle and it can actually force the door closed. I mean, that sounds like a huge design flaw. Hmm. <laughs> but, uh, well... Yeah, yes. indeed. So, yes. So apparently you can't access the door code um, panel when that happens, which is why you can't oh then dear. open it from the Oh, outside, dear. So. Design flaw. Mm, indeed. Anyway. So, Matt, <laughs> yes. it, seems, it seems like this week we keep giving you all the A380 stories, and you've got another one, Matt. Right, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, it's uh, yeah because I've got no pictures that's why so that I can do it um, but uh, yeah we uh, Lufthansa resumes A380 flights after a three year break that is the headline flightglobal.com is the source and uh, it's a German carrier Lufthansa Thursday this week resumed passenger flights with Airbus A380s for the first time since the pandemic the airline had withdrawn the ultra large aircraft from service when Covid hit more more than three years ago and a return had seemed unlikely until widespread industry capacity challenges prompted a rethink following work to prepare the aircraft for a return to service Lufthansa's Munich Boston flight uh, 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 LH424 is today operating with an A380 the aircraft bears the registration Delta Alpha India Mike Kilo which uh, Sirium fleet's data shows is 24 built Rolls-Royce Trent 900 powered model and is the first of up to six A380s the German carrier plans to return to service next month Lufthansa will deploy an A380 on its Munich to New York JFK route before later using it on services from the German city to Los Angeles and Bangkok now um, it's uh, as I say Lufthansa has uh, resumed flights uh, with an Airbus A380 for the first time, uh, deploying it on its Munich-Boston service. A good point for discussion, guys, if you're up for it, is uh, with passenger numbers bow- now back uh, at close to pre-pandemic levels, the airlines have been sharply raising fares. Arguably, this may be partly to recoup some lost revenue due the pa- during the pandemic, but equally, 
the fact that airlines have increasingly gone back to using four engine aircraft on regular scheduled routes, typically high volume ones obviously where they're more likely to make their better margins, shows that the airlines must be making good money. What do we think about that? I have to say, regardless of ticket prices and how much, I'm sure Neville agree with me on this, regardless of how much ticket prices are, you've got to fill the aircraft. Mm. With a 380, you've got, to, you've got to put bums on seats. It's as simple as that. Otherwise, things get tricky. I wonder what the minimum load factor is. Obviously, it depends on the route, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, and the, the, the handling costs at either end of the journey and that kind of thing, as far as the airport's concerned. But I wonder what the uh, sort of the, the minimum... Um, uh, occupancy level needs to be to, uh, and also in in the right class as well mm. it's no good having a load of people in the cheap seats um, and no premium passengers mm. because mm. that doesn't make it work either so um, yeah I, I would imagine the load factors have to be pretty high in order to make uh, make this work definitely. do you think some of it could be something as simple like um, you can literally get more people on that one aircraft, therefore you can perhaps run these routes with slightly fewer passenger, uh, slightly fewer pilots, as long as they're one. You know, because you can time rate, type rate them for the A380 as an example. Could it be something as simple as that? Is well, I would imagine if they're going from Munich to Boston, they're probably taking three flight deck crew anyway. Right. Okay, yeah. Probably anything over eight hours. Um, they'll need a. a, a um, uh, an additional post officer uh, on the aircraft, anyway. So I think they they've on that route anyway. They've got to operate it with with three okay. uh, flight deck crew. Whatever happens, um, don't know. Um, but again, it, well, we'll just have to see what happens here because if if they do get the load factors and it, it works well, and let's face it, you know, although the aircraft's been discontinued, we always talk about it in the in the past tense, don't we? Um, you know, there's still a, a number of these operating, and they are a great aircraft. I the only time I flew on one was earlier this year um, to Dallas, and it was just superb. Really enjoyed it. Um, so, um, and then they're going to be using it from uh, to uh, Munich to Los Angeles and Bangkok. So that's uh, much longer sectors as well. So um, we'll have to see how they get on. Just had a quick internet search: Munich to Boston with Lufthansa on the 380, um, flying uh, in a few weeks' time. Economy. Um, it's in euros, but the, the exchange rate is so bad at the minute, it's virtually the same as pounds. But uh, economy, about 700 quid. Premium economy is quite a lot more, uh, just over 1,700 euros. And business, this is the bizarre thing, premium 1,700 uh, euros. Business is 1,850. So for an extra 100 quid, you can go in business class yeah, well, thank with Lufthansa. Mm. Seems yeah. like a no-brainer somehow. Uh, just pop those up again, John. We, we've got some great comments in the chat room that we wanted to share with you. Uh, the main man, Micah, is saying part of the issue uh, was also air traffic control and gates. If you were aircraft, uh, uh, aircraft, that means using fewer gates and slots, of course. If you were to use the larger aircraft, that is definitely an advantage for that one. Um, and uh, uh, so jo John is actually suggesting that personally, I think... Uh, Part of it is that the two-engine new aircraft are being delayed. The A350, the 777X and the 787s, etc., of course, because uh, they are struggling to build them fast enough, of course. I think, uh, as John says, that, that could be a huge, huge factor in the fact that they've got these planes mm. sitting around there. So even though they aren't ideal, it's better to run those than not, you know, while you're still waiting for the new aircraft, possibly. 
Could it be as simple as that? Yeah. Should they been? Yes, because they've been delayed. They should have been in service by now, and they're not. You know, so all these yes, plans. Yes, the, the components, you know, semiconductors and supply chain mm. issues are continuing. They're not as bad as they were, but uh, it's still affecting uh, mm. everything from aviation, automotive, stuff that I do for my job, uh, all, all sorts of uh, uh, areas now. So, mm. yeah. Indeed. You know, it'll be interesting, Nev, to find out from one of your BA chums how BA are doing filling their 380s up, because I know they're brought all of their 380s back online now. Yes, they all 12 of them are back, yes. Mm. Um, I'll um, see if I can find out from um, somebody that knows. Hmm. Hmm. Be interesting to know. So, next story is coming to us uh, from Armando um, on the next one. And this is uh, all about uh, an aircraft that he is very well versed in flying. And it's all about the PC-12. And we don't do technical stories on the show very often. uh, But by this point, we've been doing this for a couple of years now. I think the Pilatus PC-12 is near and dear to all of us, if nobody else, at least Carlos, who has now flown the Pilatus twice, um, and it's probably his favorite airplane. Um, But this story is about a new company. It's not a new company, but it's a company called True Blue Power. It's a Finoff Aviation Products. They just developed a new battery. They just received the FAA's Supplemental Type Certificate, or an STC for new lithium ion batteries into all versions of the PC-12. That's all the older versions, the Series 9, the Series 10, the Series 10E, um, even the Series 10, there's Dash 45s or Dash 47s, all have a little bit slightly difference uh, in the engines, the airframes, and we'll get into the weight savings here in a little bit, or the weight differences. Um, But as you guys can imagine, uh, developing anything new for an aircraft, especially uh, when it comes to uh, something like an electrical system, new batteries, you can't just throw whatever you want into an airplane. Uh, there's a lot of paperwork that has to be done, a lot of testing that has to be done in order to, for the FAA to issue this STC um, for you to be able, for an operator to be able to put a new battery, a new widget, a new anything into the airplane. Um, so this company is touting some of the advantages of this new lithium ion battery. Um, they're talking about uh, 40 amp hours at 24 volt battery. Um, one of the biggest advantages to this is that it does easier startups for both the PT667B and P uh, engines. That's uh, the older PC-12s and the newer PC-12s. Um, it also has an operating range of minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to 158 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty hot. And uh, according to a statement from the company, this type of battery, this new battery, reduces the risk of hot starts, uh, costly engine teardowns and inspections, and improves cold weather uh, performance. Um, now, I'll get into really what the batteries are for here in a second, but they also said that the STC in this battery has a weight a reduction of over 60% over the traditional batteries in the airplane. Um, they The batteries will also last up to four times longer. Um, now, for us as a Pilatus operator, the, the owner that I work for, um, we're replacing batteries really every, every two years. And they're saying that these batteries can have a longer useful life. Um, so we're talking, you know, four or five years, probably that these batteries are not cheap. They're probably a thousand dollars, $1,200, uh, for a battery. So imagine with an aircraft that has two batteries, uh, some Pilatuses only have one. You are talking about just a couple thousand dollars in savings right there. When you're talking about the extended life of the engine with all these uh, increased cranking power, if you want to put it into like car terms, 
um, it reduces a lot of stresses on the engine and uh, reduces the amount of time that uh, that it takes the engine to spool up enough for you to add fuel into it. You're talking some significant, maybe even tens of thousands of dollars over the course of a couple years in, in engine wear and tear. Now, I'm gonna stick specifically to turboprops. So we're talking uh, aircraft like the TBM, the Caravan, the Pilatus PC-12, King Air. What do the batteries actually do, right? So it's uh, similar to your car. So when you first turn the ignition on uh, without starting the engine, you're going on battery power. It's kind of the same in the turboprop world. Um, we don't have an APU, an auxiliary power unit. There's no little extra jet engine back there. So 95% of your starts are actually off of battery power. Um, Pilatus at some point decided that uh, it was better to put two batteries into the airplane for, in for increased starting performance. Um, the other thing that we do with the batteries is obviously it provides emergency power should there be a generator failure or in our case a double generator failure in the PT667Bs and Ps. Um, the battery power is having two batteries back there. Uh, that's going to give you roughly 20 to 30 minutes of electrical power to get the aircraft to a suitable landing site. If you have a battery that lasts longer, um, now that you're talking an increased safety factor if you can get that up to 40, 45 minutes, not that you're gonna be flying around for 45 minutes, but just having that knowledge that, hey, the batteries are not gonna quit on me as I'm on short final after finding a suitable airfield to put this airplane down. Uh, the weight savings is pretty significant between the older Pilatuses and the newer Pilatuses, about 500 pounds difference in uh, weight capability. So you could have that in fuel, people, cargo. Um, so just these batteries are not light. They're probably 60, 70 pounds, the traditional ones. So a 60% weight reduction in two batteries, that probably gives you an extra 15 minutes of fuel, if not an extra tile that you can put on, on the airplane. Um, so that's pretty significant to get these lithium ion batteries into the Pilatus PC-12s. Um, this also affects the center of gravity of the airplane. So it kind of, you know, the batteries in the Pilatus sit all the way back in the tail. And, uh, you know, that, that will have to shift the, the center of gravity around. And of course, we talked about the cost savings of having a battery that lasts two or three times longer, or even four times longer as some of the traditional batteries. Um, so anyway, this, like I said, we don't usually do technical stories. Um, we threw this one in there. Really just gives me a chance to kind of nerd out over systems over the Pilatus. Uh, Anybody that's out there that's an enthusiast, it's a great airplane. You can actually Google a lot of the schematics. You can uh, just Google the uh, pilot's flight manual, the pilot's information manual, and it's a great airplane to actually learn about complex systems. Where you know when you start talking about hydraulic systems, electrical systems, and buses and things like that, kind of the next level up from general aviation flying is something like a Pilatus. And hey, you might learn something when we're talking about just a you know little old battery story. A little old battery story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I'm you lost. That story because of my battery woes from the <laughs> Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Did, was yeah. it a lithium-ion battery, though, Nev, that you got for your car? Uh, I wouldn't have thought so. Probably lead-acid, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah my quite. Machine. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, no. No, it's, all, it's the most important thing is have a good battery, especially when you're starting an aircraft like the Pilatus, mm. definitely, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, on the, on, the, uh, on the mention of Armando, we've just had some photographs literally hot off the presses. Ooh. He is, of course, in uh, Reno as we speak. So here's a couple 
couple of pictures. He's done a little sort of like a sort of panoramic-y type sort of thing of the uh, of the ramp. Oh, it's um, awful. For, is it? Right, it's awful. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> and there we go. Yeah, somebody could do it. Don't ask me to describe it. John's asking me to describe it. I can't do that because I don't know what I'm <laughs> It's Carlos, it's a light lineup of of very very nice race tuned aircraft. Right, okay. um, I think as a Vans, is that a Vans? Looks very similar to a Vans. I'm going to just say RV. yes, Carlos. I mean, I... <laughs> um, yeah, but no, it's a lovely. I tell you what, it's a beautiful backdrop as well. Mm, where yeah, that is, the mountains, the mountains, perfect, in the back, blue yeah. skies, and yeah. all that kind of thing. Yeah, I tell you what, I'm glad the weather is is good because that like, when I left there, uh, Charlotte on Saturday night, the weather was hideous. Mind you, he's not very near his home, is he? At least, no. I suppose he's no, he's he, a few miles he's away. He's a few miles yeah. away. Yeah, so uh, it could be anything. Uh, anyway, yes, uh, he's uh, he's living the dream, as it were, for the last Reno air races, and so he can't wait for the content to arrive from that it's going to be good i think yeah excellent thanks for that armando uh last story in the commercial news segment for this week coming to us from edition.cnn.com oh have we covered stories like this before guys uh, air new zealand to weigh passengers before they board aircraft and uh well, weight limits are very important things, I know, because I had to be weighed last week before I was strapped to uh, a uh, tandem skydive. That's person. very, very, very different, though. Well, <laughs> weights are very critical in that situation, trust me. Yes, I and know, but that's... Luckily, quite, that's luckily my diet be, worked. So it's very different to being weighed, like, to get on an actual aircraft. You're doing something stupid by throwing yourself out of a perfectly functioning aircraft. <laughs> Oh, the lighter you are, the longer it takes to get to the floor. Anyway, uh, Air New Zealand are going to be weighing passengers before they board the aircraft. Remove your shoes, take your keys out of your pocket, and uh, if you're a BA pilot, take your wallet out of your pocket, because we know one of the wages is so good, you see. Step on the scales. That's right, Air New Zealand's Civil Aviation Authority is asking that its national airline weigh its passengers uh, departing on international flights uh, from Auckland International Airport through July the 2nd, 2023. The programme, which Air New Zealand calls a passenger weight survey, is a way to gather data on the weight load distribution for the aircraft, the airline has said. We weigh everything that goes on the aircraft, from cargo to the meals on board to the luggage in the hold, uh, Alistair James, the airline's low control improvement specialist, said in a statement. So for customers and crew and cabin bags, we use average weights, which we get uh, from doing this survey. Still, weight is a personal thing that not everyone wishes to disclose. In order to protect an individual's privacy, the airline says it has made the data anonymous. Travellers will be asked to stand on a digital scale, which I have to admit, as me and Nev were commenting earlier, looked like something that came out of a, a local recycling bin. Anyway, they asked to stand on the scales and uh, to place their luggage on another identical scale for separate weighing. Uh, Travellers uh, will be stepping onto the scales and it can be daunting, they said. We want to reassure customers there's no visible display anywhere and no one can see your weight, not even us, James said. Oh, interesting. Uh, this isn't the first time that Air New Zealand's asked passengers to step on the scales before. 
uh, boarding their flights. Domestic passengers took part in a survey in 2021, but for the international travellers, this was delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Among the people who may be asked to take part in the survey are those travelling on the direct flight from Auckland to New York City's JFK Airport. The 17-hour flagship route was launched last fall in as a linchpin of Air New Zealand's post-pandemic strategy. It's also one of the longest flights in the world. So, weighing, uh, we all know that airlines have used average weights for a number of years now mm. for, for passengers. But, um, I mean, they weigh your luggage. I mean, we all know they weigh the luggage mm. um, when you check in at the, uh, at the desk. Never seen them... I think it's only Ryanair ever seen an EasyJet have ever bothered weighing someone's hand luggage before they boarded the aircraft. <laughs> Well, maybe um, for these very long sectors, you know, th this is starting to get a bit critical, perhaps. I was just looking at the internet where you can find out all sorts <laughs> of things on there. The internet? Uh, Do you, oh, I've yes. never heard of it, Ned. Do you think it'll catch on? Oh, well, I might do. <laughs> um, at present, airlines use assumed mass, mm. uh, estimating the total weight of the passengers by using set figures. Typically, each passenger is assumed to weigh 88 kilos. Sorry for the American... Uh, lack of pounds there uh, and airlines may use gender to refine this figure allowing 93 kilos for men and 75 for women well i'm exceeding all of those numbers straight away <laughs> so we're going to take a bit more fuel yeah. to uh, orlando on monday i think but, we'll, uh, we'll um well let, let's uh, so uh, we'll go through a few, some of the things that we've got in the chat room actually and we'll discuss shall we so no, uh, captain cruz is saying carlos uh, carlos stebbings being weighed uh, yet another reason matt won't do a jump 100 percent uh the, <laughs> the thing is they need to uh, are they going to mark Priestley is saying are they now going to insist that you go to the toilet beforehand uh, to well, ensure that you're suitably light. I mean, that'll definitely uh, do. Lose a couple of pounds. Do oh, well, quite absolutely. Now, what is interesting for me here is that. Um, uh, oh, hello. Sorry, my machine just jumped around. That was uh, uh, not helpful. So, my man Micah is actually saying, although this is so, we're covering this story like it's an unusual thing. This is actually not unusual. Certainly in the states, certain airlines in certain locations have been weighing passengers for a long time. I flew from Baltimore here to. Portland uh, once and I had to be weighed before I got on the plane so um, yeah and and again as uh, uh, John had popped it up but uh, the message that he was saying it really it's it really is a way to get a hold of the issue about the fact that they haven't changed weight factors when dealing with passengers for 50 or more years and of course well, things have, have changed point, yes uh, if, if, if i see some pictures of myself <laughs> 30 years ago <laughs> not the same weight no, <laughs> no that's for sure uh, so, yes, Absolutely yeah. agreed. Yes, sir. Uh, Bill is saying I read that uh, it was optional. Oh, hello. What am there? Sorry, uh, <laughs> the technology is going terribly wrong this evening. Uh, I read that it was an optional, which means those of us that are a, a kilogram challenge may, may not opt to stand on the scales. Uh, as for uh, as for baggage, uh, do they include emotional or physical? Is uh, what Bill is suggesting oh, there. And also, um, you know, when they ha when you get your boarding card, sometimes you've got a, a paper one um it has you know mr neville bounds uh ba gold uh, might it say in brackets fb or something like that <laughs> re referring to my 
Ah, yeah, I, Facebook, I, I you meant, I right? Know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How, how far are we going to go with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a Facebook handle, right? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> uh, yes, or as uh, oh, Bill put dear. it, um, uh, kilogram challenged, shall we say? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> can can it be refused? If you, yeah, can can you be refused if you're over a certain number? I mean, that is interesting. If you, if for example, you were doing a parachute jump, you would absolutely two hundred and thirty pounds. Two hundred and thirty pounds. What's that in in English? Uh, it's 103 kilos. Right, okay, lovely, excellent. Um, I'm a long way off that, that is good news. Uh, <laughs> excellent. Certainly on the, uh, some of the commuter aircraft I've been on uh, previously, um, uh, Fokker 50 aircraft, I seem to remember. Yeah, language. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have been weighed on a couple of occasions, uh, leaving uh, one of the regional airports in Sweden to go back to Copenhagen. Um, but, uh, yeah, on, on the big metal, I, I, no, that's never happened before. Uh, John, Jonathan Warner is singing exceptional load labels. Uh, that would be me, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's like in my case, it, you know, it's that I'm not going to give you, I'm not, I'm not going to wait, you know, I'm not going to get weighed. Just whatever <laughs> number you think it is, double it, and you're probably not far enough. Uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, Richard Adams is saying, if anyone wants a great lesson in aircraft weights when loading, there is a great CAA video featuring Bruce Dickinson, uh, who uh, used to be, uh, yes, Iron Man, who used to teach baggage handlers the, cr the, the criticality of load positions. There you go. <laughs> yeah, Micah, I, absolutely, Micah, I've, seen, I've actually seen a couple of those on the news feeds in the last few couple weeks. Um, Mike is in the chat room said uh, there's also a series of lawsuits going on in the US at the moment regarding large passengers who are insisting they are not being catered to uh, take catered uh, for by the airlines. Oh, so, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, I've, I have seen the reports of that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's never going to end well. Indeed, yeah, the second part to that is uh, the that they are being discriminated against uh, because of their size, which is totally crazy. The airlines create a seat size, and it's up to you to determine if it works for you, um, which I think is fair enough. I think mm. it's fair, isn't it? I, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you that. And, uh, and I've got a great segue into the next part of the show from mm. that story. Brace yourselves, everyone. Because... Deep breaths, here we go. No, this is... The... Uh, Coming up next on the show, a great link this is, honestly. Uh, this is uh, another segment, actually, that me and Nev took uh, from the National Museum of Flight in Edinburgh. And we're going to be taking a look at the Comet 4C. And if you look at, the, or look at the seats on this aircraft, I can tell you now that they were very, very accommodating seats. So uh, let's take a look at the video in the Comet 4C. So we've managed to get on board the Comet here at the National Museum of Flight. It's a Comet 4C, uh, painted in the Dan Air livery. And, uh, well, it's fantastic. Really good to see this. Honestly, guys, if you could get a chance to come up here, you've got to see this. Look at the interior in the, in the retro 70s style um, fabric and colours that uh, they had back uh, when this aircraft was working with Dan Air. This aircraft originally... Um, was used by the Royal Air Force as well before it was brought by Dan Air to use as a commercial airliner. But um, just looking at the seating arrangements here, you've actually got there's no uh, there's no blind that you pull down like on normal commercial airlines. We've actually got curtains on this aircraft to pull down uh, to stop this sun. Uh, but you can see the round windows as well, which um, 
obviously were a design that Comet put in place after the terrible crashes that uh, happened to the Comet when it was first designed when it had square windows which obviously didn't work very well with pressurization hence the round windows which I have to say going by uh, standard commercial airliner size windows of today these windows are a lot bigger uh, also something else to notice as well is the seating arrangements here with the seats facing rearward uh, just towards the, the middle of the aircraft here overwing exit is just there and you've got this last row of seats here which are facing towards the rear of the aircraft but another thing to note as well which I was just mentioning to Nev just a moment ago is how well cushioned the seats are you know there's no two inch or one inch thick seat and these are really well cushioned seats quite comfy as well I think if you're sitting on here overwing exit or another overwing exit as well here uh, with the, the pull-out windows again loads of legroom even the seats here that go down towards the front of the aircraft the standard legroom in here is pretty good but remember this is the heyday of flying when you had big seats and loads of legroom and, and places to uh, to actually put your bags on that note overhead lockers they're not lockers as such but are literally kind of trays that you can put your bags into above here with no door there's no latching system it is purely just like a coach you would have back uh, on the roads at home where you put your bags in over the heads here there's no lockers in here but uh, there's something else to note as well back to when you could actually smoke on board aircraft with the uh, cigarette ashtrays here in the arms uh, something as well as well recline the seats did recline with a little switch on the front here you could recline your seat and another thing to notice as well on these particular seats which I've just picked up on is that they are quite a sturdy well-built framework underneath the seats I think these are probably uh, made out of something other than aluminium which is what most of the aircraft seats are made out of nowadays so quite heavy in that respect then the front of the aircraft we're going down towards the flight deck now again the last row of seats here uh, in a 2-2 configuration uh, are facing rearward uh, on the aircraft and again you can see those lovely glorious curtains there which uh, you could pull across to stop the sun from coming out now just noting here as I'm walking through there's actually uh, there is a PA system on board which obviously the cabin crew use and there are the speakers up here which I would imagine judging by the size are probably a better sound quality than the current speakers that we have on board commercial airliners today I don't know perhaps someone who's watching the show who flew a, co a comet back in the day could say what the PA system is like but looking back a 3-2 configuration with the seating with what I think is actually quite a quite a narrow actually I think can you know compared to some of the airliners this is feels to me like quite a narrow um, separation between the between the seats it looks like it would be quite a mission to push a galley cart down here but what an iconic airliner the Comet I wish I'd have had the chance to have flown on one of these uh, before they were taken out of service but as I said this one is a down air X down air painted outside with the glorious down air colors and is here outside as a static display at the museum uh, to actually you can walk around you can actually go right underneath the uh, aircraft into where the wheel wells are for the main gear and put your head right inside there and have a look round. and have a quick look at the flight deck which is behind us or in front of us I actually say here now never's gonna swing round looking at the galley there and then there is the glorious flight deck there which you can see 
with the captain co-pilot and also navigator's chair as well there but uh, no uh, modern GPS's here all steam gauges but uh, what a fantastic piece of engineering the Comet was in its day and uh, a really great commercial airliner that uh, sadly didn't last as long I think as de Havilland would have liked but um, great to be able to come on board the Comet here at the National uh, Museum of Flight and uh, big thanks again to all the team here for letting us uh, come on board this what is an iconic British commercial airliner. I mean it's uh, it, it reminds me of uh, not an aircraft believe it or not it actually reminds me of uh, like a coach you know because you haven't got the overhead locker bins like what like, like you do to lock in your your coach it's literally just a, a luggage rack um, you know, angled to sort of stop stuff from falling out as best you can. But uh, that is, as I say, and like, even down to the, the not aluminium. But, I mean, those seats must have been blooming heavy. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd be fascinated to know what the, the weight factor is. And if you took those seats out and put in modern seats, how much lighter the aircraft would be. That would be a fascinating experiment for me. Can you remember, Nev, when um, airliners had seats like that? Uh not quite, no. All the aircraft I went on would sort of tend to be um, 737 Britannias out of Luton and things like that, uh, apart from, obviously, the Concorde that I had the, the pleasure of flying on. Um, but no, the um, I, I don't think I ever recall being on an aircraft with seats quite like that in terms of how, how thick the cushions were. Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, but uh, no, it was uh, fascinating. But as you said, it was a bit tight, wasn't it? That To, to, to get a, a cart down the galley there in between the two rows of seats must have been quite challenging i would think yeah but it's still like we we just saying there when the video is playing out we it's a, it's a shame really that we uh, haven't or we none of us have had the opportunity to have ever flown on the uh, on the comet no but um yes very good but got still got some more to come from the museum haven't we nev some more oh, yes, evidence to we come have out lots Lots Plus of our chat and, as well. And, of course, the big interview as well with Ian, uh, the yeah. curator of the museum. So we'll be playing that at some point, yeah. Yeah, looking forward to that as well. Um, but uh, moving on to the next part of the show. And Armando's not here this week, as, uh, as we said earlier on the show. He's busy at Reno, but we have got a military segment on the show, haven't we? So, uh, Matt, if you're ready, Indeed. hit the button. story thank you for making the time for it guys um, this was uh, just a couple days ago uh, a Navy F5 Tiger II crashed about 25 miles off the coast of Naval Air Station Key West in Florida around uh, 920 local time I believe it was on the 31st of May uh, the pilot of the fighter jet uh, assigned to the Sundowners fighter squadron uh, VFC 111 was actually recovered by a crew of an MH60S Nighthawk uh, the pilot was actually flown to a Miami hospital for further treatment, according to the U.S. Navy. Uh, of course, they mentioned that the well-being of the pilot is their number one priority, and the cause of the accident will be investigated. Uh, in 2017, another F-5 
two aggressor assigned to the Sundowners crashed off the coast of Key West. That pilot was also recovered by the Coast Guard following the crash. Now, the Sundowners are actually a Navy Reserve Fleet Adversary Program. They fly as opposition forces for active duty squadrons or really any, any squadron. If you think about Top Gun, the movie, the original, um, the F-5 that was on there uh, acting as both aggressors and they were actually acting as the bad guys, that's the kind of airplane that we're talking about. And they uh, take F-18s, they can take F-35s, they can take some of the newer aircraft and then put them up against an aircraft, a legacy aircraft we're gonna call it, like the F-5. Um, according to the Navy that they just put out the statement on May 31st, they confirmed that the pilot was assigned to Naval Air Station Key West and um, they launched a rescue helicopter after receiving news that the uh, aircraft had been um, had been lost but that the pilot was was um, safe. So think back to your Top Gun days. We're obviously very glad that the pilot is okay but that kind of uh, flying is exactly what was happening when uh, this aircraft had its mishap out there in Key West. I had to look up what the F-5 was there, and uh, it took me by surprise then, Armando. I had to look up the F-5. I'm I trying to picture the F-5 in my head. The Northrop uh, Corporation F-5 released, or first flew in 1959. So it's a few years before me and you were about. Hey, Matt. But, yes, um, quite. Yeah. Uh, flew with um, Republic of China, Korea, and the Islamic Republic of Iran and the U.S. Uh, States, or U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, I should say, as well. But, um, yeah, thank you for uh, that, as always, Armando. And it's good to see that the pilot was safely recovered as well. That's always a good thing to hear on these stories. Uh, up next story another one from armando and uh it's all about uh that uh, rather interesting piece that hit the news this week when the chinese decided to have a bit of a fun session in the sky with an rc-135 now this next military story is from the drive.com it was actually reported widely in the national news media also a People's Liberation Army J-16 flanker multi-role fighter performed an, quote, unnecessarily aggressive maneuver close to a U.S. Air Force RC-135 surveillance aircraft over the South China Sea, according to the Pentagon. Now, the incident was the latest in a string of encounters between the Chinese military and that of the United States and its allies in these hotly contested waters. With recent previous examples, including a simulated attack on a U.S. Navy task group and a close proximity intercept of another RC-135 by a Chinese J-11 uh, tanker uh, fighter uh, last December. According to a statement from the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, the latest incident, which happened on May 26th of uh, 2023, the pilot of this J-16 flew directly in front of the nose of the RC-135, forcing the U.S. aircraft to fly through its wake turbulence. Now, the term describes the disturbed airflow uh, that an aircraft trails behind it, and it could be potentially dangerous to any aircraft, um, as we, you know, would be similar with a, uh, a commercial airliner landing into an airport and you have a smaller aircraft behind it. Um, but there were some videos that went 
online and you can see cameras don't really do it justice but you can see as the the chinese fighter cuts right in front of the nose of the aircraft and you can see that the rc-135 which is based on 707 platform pretty big airplane shook pretty well um as it flew through the jet wash and the white turbulence of this uh, fighter jet. Now this type of maneuver uh, on the part of the Chinese fighter is known as thumping or a headbutt and involves the aircraft putting itself in front of the nose of the aircraft that is being intercepted, sometimes at a very close range. Um, in any case, the potential of, of wake turbulence could be uh, very risky for the aircraft on the receiving end. Now the Chinese obviously have been kind of known to do this. They do this regularly. Uh, most famously, probably was the uh, the intercept gone wrong of a U.S. Navy EP-3 Orion, where in that situation they came so close that the aircraft actually collided, and that EP-3 ended up having to uh, do an emergency landing on Hainan Island, um, and the crew was uh, detained for a couple of days while the diplomacy worked. Uh, to get them back back home. So kind of takes place all the time, but the Pentagon is saying that this one was, quote, again, unnecessarily aggressive. You be the judge of it by watching the video. Thank you, Armando. And uh, if you haven't seen the video yet, it's doing the rounds on social media, especially on Twitter. And I think it's on YouTube as well now, if you just uh, Google Chinese uh, J-16 and uh, RC-135. And if you watch the video, you'll see that the pilots were, were shaken. Well, they were, sh they were shaken around in, on the um, uh, flight deck of the 135. And it did, it did cause, you know, a, definitely an upset in the air uh, with the guys, which, as we know, if you've ever watched some of the episodes of Air Crash Investigation, these things can, um, you know, bring down airliners, can't they, Nev? Uh, yes, very much so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, no, very fortunate as it turned out. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. Silly thing to do, though, but there we go. Yeah. Uh, last one, coming from simpleflying.com, and it's all about uh, a rather large aircraft, the C-17 Globemaster, uh, is now St. Helens, Helens Airport's biggest visitor. Uh, the mighty C-17 Globemaster with a wingspan of 169 feet blimey, is uh, now visiting St. Helena Airport in the South Atlantic. Uh, the C-17 is uh, not being exiled like Napoleon was back in the early 1800s to St. Helena, but rather it's conducting a United Kingdom Royal Air Force capability demonstration. South Africa's Airlink has served St. Helena's Airport since October the 14th, 2017, flying a weekly service with its Embraer we, uh, E-190 with the AR standing for Advanced Range, uh, also known as the Embraer 190-100 IGW. However, there are times when the British need to haul heavy equipment to the remote overseas territory, which is why one of the Royal Air Force's eight C-17s paid a visit. According to the St. Helena Independent, the C-17 registration Zulu Zulu 177 arrived on May the 19th to undertake four approaches, a fly past over James Bay and finally a full stop landing. During the last approach, the air crew also did a bit of showmanship, showing off the undercarriage to the gathered spectators before landing. 
The landing showed off the C-17's incredible capabilities by only using 2,516 feet or 767 meters of the runway, which is just about half its total length. St. Helena's runway is around 5,036 feet long or 1,535 meters. After the full stop landing and more accurate turnaround or more acute turnaround uh, than the weekly Airlink E190, the C17 crew and personnel numbering around 20 had a picture with the CEO of the airport. Uh, who is uh, CEO Gwyneth Howell. Uh, for the airport that was once branded the world's most useless airport, that's a bit harsh, St Helena's continued to prove its worth. The C-17 Globemaster is, uh, as we all know, a Boeing-built military airlifter which first flew back in September 1991. 200, uh, 279 aircraft were built between 91 and 2015, with the overwhelming majority, 222, in service with the U.S. Air Force. However, C-17s can also be found with uh, the Air Forces of the following countries, including Australia, Canada, India, Kuwait, NATO forces, uh, Qatar, United Arab Emirates and obviously us here in the UK with the Royal Air Force. Now the C-17 Globemaster called Globemaster 3 in the United States Air Force is an undeniable sign of national commitment to cause with a hundred or hundred and seventy thousand nine hundred pounds worth of maximum payload or if you're feeling like kilograms seventy seven thousand five hundred nineteen kilograms of payload uh, it can haul military tanks as well as large industrial equipment anywhere in the world with refueling aerial refueling capabilities without the aerial refueling the c-17's range is around two thousand seven hundred and eighty miles or four thousand four hundred and eighty kilometers the C-17 is best known for Operation Allies Refugee, or to the Brits, Operation Pitting, the relatively successful evacuation from Afghanistan uh, as the Afghan government collapsed late 2021. Thousands and thousands of refugees crammed to many aircraft, but mostly C-17s, including on one record-setting mission, the Flee the Totalitarian Taliban Forces. The C-17s uh, flying to Kabul International Airport, surrounded by mountains without modern Western navigation equipment, required the aircraft could not just navigate, but also which have the lift and thrust to fit into tight spaces. The C-17 was the right aircraft for the job, but it's four Pratt & Whitney F-117-PW100 turbofan engines based on the Boeing's 757 engines, and each engine packing 40,440 pounds of thrust attached to a high-lift wing. Ultimately, the C-17 can land on short runways and even freight, uh, take freight long distances. And the C-17 can be on a mission of humanitarian assistance or supporting war fighting just as easily. And in fact, we had one of these fly over us a couple of days ago, Matt. Oh, just over Suffolk here. Yeah, yeah, just over Suffolk, um, going into Mildenhall, I, I presume. But uh, uh -huh. yeah, you, you can't miss them when you see them in the sky, trust me. <laughs> Even when they're at 10,000 feet, they're still blooming huge aircraft. They're noisy, see. I think, is the word you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, a good bit of kit, these C-17s. Mm. And uh, yeah, thanks for, for putting the military stories together for mm. us this week, Armando. As always, yeah. Next part of the show, then, it is and the... Of course, yeah. 
And Nick as well. Yes, thanks, Nick. The uh, caption this just for fun picture this week, which uh, as Armando is not with us, I thought this week, just for a change, we'd do a, a military special caption this picture. So <laughs> Matt's got the picture there. And uh, Nev, for the benefit of our, uh, our audio listeners, what, what's going on in this uh, particular picture this week? Well, it looks like some uh, bees or wasps, uh, probably bees actually, aren't they, And uh, the exhaust pipe uh, areas of uh, a couple of engines. Um, so um, we were in no shortage of uh, suggestions as to what they might be. Well coined, indeed. <laughs> uh, Neil uh, kicked us off saying uh, Fly B resumes oh, service with new fast jets. <laughs> I see what happened James there. Says, <laughs> James says apparently bees absolute adore airplanes. <laughs> uh, Alan says, is that an F-18 or is it a B-52? <laughs> Bill says, yes, sir, they are hornets on the flight line. Why do you ask? Oh, in reference to the aircraft, very good. Oh, I see, right, yes. Uh, Stuart says you're going to need some cream for that. <coughs> Quite, absolutely. It's going to be a bit sore, that one, isn't it? James is saying with all those bees making a home there, those engines are even sweeter. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, David says, roast honey, anyone? That F-18 has a sting in its tail. See what you did there? Yeah. I do like this one. It's from John. He says, there's a real buzz about Honeywell aerospace <laughs> engines being fitted to US Navy fighters. <laughs> I think Richard is making a bit of a reference to the old uh, Top Gun uh, film here. He said, let's go and buzz the tower. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, another another um, B reference here. Mark says, drones attack. It's true. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and finally, from Dirk, exhausted bees. Exhausted bees. Yes. Once again, good. see what he did there. Uh, anything yeah. in the chat room? What have we got in the chat room? Uh, Mark Priestley uh, says, sting in the tail. Very good. Yes, I like it. Yeah, anything else? Uh, Richard Adams, not a B1 bomber. <laughs> oh, no. Jonathan Warner is saying, looks like a B1B. <sighs> <laughs> Richard Adams. Oh, blimey. Go on, Matt. Yeah, Richard he Adams. says, uh, who needs stinger missiles? <laughs> Very good. Love it. Love it. There we go. Big thanks to everyone who took part in the caption this this week. Don't forget to check out our social media on Facebook on a Wednesday when I tend to put these pictures up for you to, uh, to leave your witty, funny comments on. Uh, so make sure you check, out on, uh, check us out on Facebook. All the details, more on that coming at the end of the show. But let's hand things over to our resident librarian of the show. Librarian? <laughs> yeah, but, but a lot of people have said that about me, that they should <laughs> spend more time in the library. Unfortunately, most of our libraries have closed around where I'm Well, of course. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Uh, right, the caption competition. Sorry, the, I beg your pardon, the, the book competition. We've just had the caption competition. Uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, uh, what exact date did Sir Richard Johns join the RAF as an air cadet and we had several correct answers here so i've got a new uh bag here which oh, i'm going sorry. to use to draw out the uh correct answers uh so we've got uh, several in here so i'm just gonna have a quick fiddle looks, looks quite a posh and bag that nev it, it does yes it's the, the the battery jump starter pack uh, came in 
um, a bit of advertising for them there as well on, on the front there. Anyway, in my hand here, I do have one of the correct answers. Let's see who the lucky Drum roll. or lady. And uh, it is Richard Adams. Oh, very good. Week. Very good. There we are. Well, well done, Richard. Richard. And your prize, sir, is a copy of Sir Richard John's uh, autobiography, uh, Bolt from the Blue. You'll remember that uh, Nick and I did a super series of interviews with Sir Richard, uh, one of the first big um, interviews we did, actually. Uh, so that'll be winging its way to you tomorrow. I should go down to the post office and uh, send it off to you. We have your address, I'm sure. So well done. And uh, we have, of course, another competition to um, pose. Uh, to you another question because we've got another book here uh, this one's Halton Boys um, and uh, this is written by Sean Feast and there's a connection here because uh, RAF Halton is the nearest military uh, RAF station to where I live here in Buckinghamshire and the question is what year was the airbase established what year was the airbase established at RAF Halton here's the prize Halton Boys by Sean Feast. It's just occurred to me that I've not actually given you the answer to the uh, Sir Richard John's question, which was very remiss of me. So the answer to that was uh, the exact date that he joined the RAF as an air cadet was the 9th of January 1957. 9th of January 1957 for that one. And this week's question is, RAF Halton is the nearest military station to where I live here in Buckinghamshire. What year was the air-based base established? Send your answers to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Don't put it in the chat room because it won't count. <laughs> Send it off to us uh, by email and then we'll read out the, uh, we'll do another prize draw of the winners next week. Oh, thanks for that, Nev. And well done to Richard Adams for, uh, for sending in the correct answer. Yeah, well done. Well Excellent done. Job. Uh, what I'll try and do as well, uh, will, uh, for those of you who follow us on Facebook, I will try and get uh, a little screenshot of that book which uh, is on offer this week, along with the question as well. Nev, if you can swing them over to me, I shall pop them on our socials so everyone gets a good old chance at uh, winning yes, that definitely. book. Yeah. So we're going to start to wrap up this week's show, and uh, but don't forget to uh, check out our social medias. If you've not already uh, looked us up, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, search for Plain Talking UK. Uh, our WhatsApp number as well, if you fancy sending us a picture to go on the green screens behind me and also Matt in the PTUK studios, you can send those to plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. If you want to email the show and send in your answers to win that book or send us in some feedback, you can send it into podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. And the website, allthews.plaintalkinguk.com, is where you can find out more info on the team. And also, you can find the links on there to Patreon if you want to become a patron of the show. Or if you want to uh, send us a, a dollar or two on PayPal as well, all the links on there. And also, don't forget, on our website is the shop where you can get yourself not only one of our fantastic PTUK uh, T-shirts with the embroidered logo on the front and the uh, print on the back, you can also get yourself one of our glorious PTUK mugs and also the military grey mug as well, which I know I'd spied in our Mundo's cabinet last week at his house. He's got his in there. Uh, you can find all the uh, links on there to, to get yourself one of those fantastic mugs. 
And, uh, yeah, don't forget to uh, check us out on uh, the website as well, where you can find the info on us as, a, as all us hosts. You can find out what, what, what we, how we came to be where we are today as such. Well, that is about it, guys and girls. Nev, quick round robin. What are you up to next week, Nev? I'm back doing some flying next week. Well, as a passenger, not actually flying the A320. So <laughs> uh, off to Stockholm Wildander on Monday uh, for a couple of days and then back on Wednesday. So uh, I'll be able to see if BA have done the new uh, safety video yet. I can't mm. wait for that. And Matt, what are ye up to next week? Do you know, not a lot really, just work I think really, quite a quiet one for me I think. Going to be very oh. unusual. Yeah, oh. no, no radio or anything, just just like, just yeah, oh. quiet week. <laughs> Apart from tomorrow morning obviously. Well yeah, yeah, but that, that's yeah. just normal, okay. that's the weekend, yeah. but uh, yeah. yeah, during the week, okay. yeah, not, not a lot really, yeah. And uh, John, what are you up to uh, next week? Oh, brilliant. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. He's, uh, he's going skydiving. Well done, Is John. He? Right. Right. <laughs> so, we're going to say a big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening. Thanks to everyone in there, all the usual family members joining us this evening. Good to see you in there. Also, big thanks to everyone who downloads the show as an audio podcast each week. Thanks for supporting us all. It's what we love doing. And don't forget as well, uh, in a, in next, next Sunday, next Sunday, me, Matt and Nev will be at the RAF Cosford Air Show. Uh, we're going to be there. So if you are off to the RAF Cosford Air Show next Sunday, don't forget to come and say hello to me. Nev and Matt will be there. Nev will have his muff out, I don't doubt. And uh, Matt, I'm sure, will be uh, doing his tech stuff as he does uh, so well every time. Screw that, I'm eating ice cream. <laughs> He's eating ice creams. <laughs> so that's it then for the show, guys. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend, uh, whatever you're up to. That's it for episode 458 of the show. We'll see you next Friday uh, on the show, uh, where we may well have a special guest next Friday. But, uh, yeah, we'll save that one for next week. So take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you next Friday. Say goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye.